one thing before we get into the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18 is the chapter that we're on um, this morning. I just want to say in two months from now, we're going to start a new series, and the series is called Smoking Hot. And it's going to be never done a series before on the book of the Song of Solomon. And it's going to be on the Song of Solomon. And the topics that we're going to cover are four of them. And uh, it's going to be dating, because the Song of Solomon is about dating. It's about sex. It's about marriage. And then we're going to add in uh, a fourth topic, and that is pornography. And the reason I'm bringing that up to you is to say this. Uh, About 50% of men, according to numbers, pornography is playing some kind of negative role in our lives. And we have a tool that we want to test out in preparation for this. So I'm asking if any guys, you'd have to feel kind of prompted to do this, want to help me field test something out for 30 days, and then we get together before we start that series and we talk and give some feedback. You don't have to struggle with pornography. If you're a guy, I think you can identify. Uh, And we want to talk about this because this is a serious issue, and we want to be of some help. So this will cost you 100 bucks, men, to actually do, so not everybody's going to say, hey, I want to do this. But if you'd like to help me out with that, just come and see me. And I'll tell you how to get started with it, and then we'll set up a time to meet. So there you go with that. I want to let you know it's coming. We'll talk more about that in the future. Acts chapter 18. Very interesting chapter. Some, some incredible turning points take place here. The title of the message is How to Find My Life. There's another way to say that, which maybe is a more popular way to say it. I wanted to say it a little bit different, How to Find My Life, and more... Maybe the more popular way is to say, God, what is your will for my life? That has been the most popular question for me for 26 years in ministry that I have been asked. Hey, John, can you help me figure out what God's will is for my life? Like, I want to know what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And what I've recognized over 26 years is that there's a growing frustration surrounding that question. And so a thought hit me quite strongly this week, and this is what I want to talk about. Now, we're going to go way around the mountain to come back to it. So I wanted you to know that in the beginning, because we're going to go through this message. You're going to say, what in the world does that have to do with me figuring out my life? We're going to talk about. So it's coming, but you're going to have to wait to the end. We're going to do a lot of groundwork before we get there. So we catch up with Paul. We looked at him for the past couple weeks. He was in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. He had some good times there. He had some tough times there. Goes to Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. Then he goes to Athens. Ah, you know, it went so-so in Athens. Athens was a real intellectual city, which was perfect for Paul. The perfect place for Paul because he was an intellect. But they didn't really receive him too well there. And now he finds himself in Corinth. And let's read this. The first 11 verses of Acts chapter 18, it says this. And after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. That's a historical fact. There's a Roman historian named Suetonius that also confirms this, that historically this is exactly what happens, kicks all the Jews out. So Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, and they were tent makers, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath... He reasoned, we've been talking about that word a lot, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy, his friends, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Preaching and teaching was Paul's main gift, main spiritual gift. And now he's focused 100% on doing that. He's laid the tent making aside for the time, and he's focused completely on his spiritual gift of preaching and teaching. An important point to make here. Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler in his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians heard him, believed, and were baptized. Now, that's fascinating. You know, the Bible just kind of skims over what it would seem to us. This has never happened before. Every place he's gone, the Jewish leadership, like Crispus, the synagogue ruler, has been rising up, rejecting Paul and saying, we don't want to hear this. And now when he says, you know what, I'm done, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, this incredible thing takes place, and a synagogue leader, Crispus, receives Christ as his Savior and his whole household, and they all join in with the worship. Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do, uh, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you. Now, check out this last thing that God says to him in this vision. Because I have many people in this city. Now, that's a very strange thing to say. And we'll try to give you reasons for that in just a moment. A lot of people in Corinth doesn't make sense. What's God saying? Because there hadn't been a church established in Corinth. There hadn't been this strong witness of Jesus. The story of Jesus, as far as we can tell, had not been told. So how does God have a lot of people in this city? What God is saying to Paul is, I got a lot of people ready, willing, and able, and desiring to respond. That when they're presented with the message of Jesus Christ, they are going to respond and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Like They're not followers of Christ now. But there's a lot of them out there in this city. And I'll try to show you in a second why that seems like such a bizarre statement to say. And then it finishes off by saying this. Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, help us, Lord, uh, with this passage. Amazing passage of scripture. Um, Speak to us. What is it that we need to hear this morning? Make that so incredibly clear in this place. Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. Corinth. We need to do a little background on Corinth. Why is that such a bizarre statement that I have a lot of people in this city? It was the largest city in Greece, much larger than Athens, much, much larger, about 700,000 people living there. It was a people that were on the move. And what I mean by that, kind of an unsettled society, is that people would come there for a couple weeks or a couple of years, not everybody, but a lot of people moving in and out, short time, long time, two or three, four, five years, and they would go back someplace else. And there was a smaller amount of people who were kind of there all the time, very much like Washington, D.C., right? Arlington County turns over one-third of its population every five years. You look around this room, 33.3% of you in this room, five years from now, you're not going to be here. Now, you could just daydream for a second if you closed your eyes and you think about what 33. who do I want to be in that 33.3%? It would no longer be here, all right? 
It was kind of an unsettled city. I mean, you know, you know, when you have a lot of coming and going, it's kind of like when you go on vacation, right? When you go on vacation, you don't have your normal patterns and routines. And what do you tend to do when you don't have your normal patterns and routines? You don't kind of eat the way that you should eat. You don't maybe drink the way that you should drink. All the patterns are gone, and then you wait till you get back home, and you have those established patterns, and you kind of get back on track. Sometimes you get a little more wild, you know what I'm saying, than you want to get. So there's kind of almost like a spring break atmosphere that exists in Corinth, all right? I think you know what I mean there. It's a little bit of that atmosphere. The location of it was very important because it had two ports. It was a long sliver sliver of land, about four miles wide. And because of that, because of the fact that the ships, it had two ports, it was treacherous to go a 200-mile trek. They would say, if you want to sail around the Cape of Malaya, that was the end of Corinth, you want to sail about around it, you should go ahead and just make out your will. Because it was treacherous, what they would do, check this out, they would bring ships in to the one port, they would put them on rollers, and they would push the ship straight through the city, loaded with all kinds of merchandise. It was, a, it was a business center. It was a trading center. A lot of businessmen, a lot of commerce going on. It was a very wealthy city is what I'm trying to tell you. They're rolling the ships straight on through. It was the seat of government. The seat of government. There was, there was a lot of partiers, there was a lot of businessmen, and there was a lot of politicians. There was a lot of money there. It was kind of like a combination of Vegas, New York City, and Washington, D.C., kind of all rolled up into one. Partying was so extreme in Corinth, they would call it being Corinthianized. So somebody would say, that person's been Corinthianized. And what it meant was, in that day, is that person had been injected with lust, like a lust for more and partying and all this kind of stuff. And the uh, plays were very big back in Greece uh, during this time. And anytime somebody who from Corinth was up on stage acting... They were always presented as being drunk. There was a temple there, a very large temple to Aphrodite. And this temple had, this temple, this one temple alone had 1,000 sacred prostitutes who worked in this temple. It was wild. It was Las Vegas. It was spring break. So when God says to Paul, I have many people in this city, can't you imagine that Paul's saying, you do? Are you, are you serious? When's the last time somebody came up with a strategic idea to start a revival in the middle of a spring break? Does that work well? Years ago, we, uh, we had a Saturday night service. We were, talking about doing, start, we were talking about launching a Saturday night service. And we were debating, should it be Saturday night? Would that work? And somebody said, somebody said, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea to have a Saturday night service because people go out and party on Saturday nights. The last thing they want to think about as they're getting ready to go out and party is Jesus. Like they want to, what you want to do is have a Sunday night service because after the partying is over and they're remorseful, then they want to go to church on Sunday night and say, oh my gosh, forgive me of all my sins, right? But you don't do it in the midst of the party. So Corinth is this big party, everybody. Are we, we, we clear on that? It's this massive party and God says, I got a lot of people in this city. And Paul's like, you do? I mean, I could expect God you to do great things in Jerusalem or in Antioch, or in other places where there's some kind of, uh, you know, morality that's similar to me, Paul's thinking. But Corinth, where it's a massive spring break going on, you have a lot of people in this city. And it kind of doesn't make sense. Despite all that, everybody, you know what? God does a great thing in the city of Corinth. I mean, an amazing thing. In the city of Corinth, I already told you, this guy Crispus, the synagogue leader, he receives Christ. Never happened before. Never happened before. 
But there's another guy mentioned later on in Acts 18. His name is Sosthenes, and he's called also the synagogue ruler. So Crispus, he resigns his post, obviously, when he receives Christ as Savior. He can't be the synagogue ruler anymore. So the guy who takes over him, his name is Sosthenes. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, I am writing on behalf of myself and Sosthenes. And many commentators believe it's Sosthenes who followed the leadership in the synagogue of Crispus when he became a Christian. Sosthenes also becomes a Christian. Is this amazing? There's never been that kind of dramatic impact at all. And of all places, it happens in Corinth. Paul writes more, you know that Paul writes like a third of the New Testament, as our first and second graders told us just a few moments ago. He writes a third of it. He writes more to Corinth than he does to any other church. Because God is doing such amazing things. Romans, the book of Romans, has 16 chapters. First and second Corinthians has 29 chapters. He writes a lot. So, with all that being said, with the many incredible things going in Acts chapter 18, what do we want to talk about this morning? Here's what struck me this past week as I read and reread and prayed about this. That phrase, I have many people in this city. And here's why it just leaped off the page at me as I just kept working through this week. I felt like God said... I have many people in this city of Washington, D.C. I have many, many people in this city of Washington, D.C. ready and wanting to respond to the message of the grace of Jesus Christ in their life. I have many people in this city. What impact does that have upon us? What are we supposed to do about that? What we're supposed to do is to participate in the mission of Jesus Christ in this world. That's what we're called to do. I want to show you something. It's on your outline probably on the screen behind me. It's from John chapter 17. It's very important that we see this. This is, I want to talk about just a couple briefly this morning, some really important foundational things about the church and what the church is and what it means, because it's so easy to misunderstand it. All right, John 17. It's the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's a whole chapter where he's doing nothing but praying. And he gets to verse number 18, and he says something very important. He says this, he's praying to the Father. This Father As you have sent me, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Who's he praying for? He's praying for all of us. And what he's saying here is this, as you've sent the Latin word mission. As you, Father, have given me a mission in this world, I am now giving them a mission in this world just the same. So here's what this means. Here's what it means for you and me. If you're a follower of Christ, if you associate yourself in some way to Jesus Christ, it means there's no way to be associated with Jesus Christ and not to be on a mission. You can't be associated with Jesus Christ and and not be on a mission because it goes contrary. It flies in the face of everything that Jesus Christ tells us in his word. You can't sit on the sidelines. You have to participate in the mission. Or something at its very core of your being is going to be messed up. It's like the Holy Spirit is saying, mission, mission, move. And we say, you know what? I just want to show up and listen a little bit and I want to go. It doesn't work because we have a mission. So fill this one in. Your life has a mission. Very important. Your life has a mission. It's foundational. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is living in you. And now you have a mission And you must move. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says to his disciples, I am sending you out. Matthew 28. He says, you have to go. 
You can't observe, can't sit on the sideline, you can't watch. Watching's not an option. You have to go. Now, what is the church, everybody? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus Christ says these words. He says, I will build my church. And so often, we think of the church as this fixed place or this fixed thing that doesn't move. Here's another foundational thing I want you to write down. The word church is from a Greek word called ecclesia. And ecclesia means the word, the definition of the word means a group of people who have been called out. A group of people who have been called out, called out, called out on the move. If they, if we were a group of people, anybody, people say, you know what, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't go to church. You know, that's impossible. Church is not a place you go. It's something that you become a part of the moment you receive Jesus Christ as Savior. I know a lot of us have been hurt by church. I've been hurt by church and have problems with church. I've had problems with church. But I am a part, everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, whether they go to a location or not, is a part of the church because the church is something that's on the move. The church is not a place where we say, hey, come in here and be a part of us and sit down and relax. The church is a place that's on the move. It's moving. It's a group of people who have been called out to move. To move. The church is on the move. The problem is, is when the church becomes associated with something that is static, that is not moving, it's messed up at its very core. When it becomes a group of people who are observers, who are stationary, it's messed up at its core. When it's stuck or it's rigid or it's set in its ways and it's unwilling to move or to participate, there's a problem. Let me give you an example. I love to play basketball. I've been playing basketball all my life. And I've noticed something about myself because I still try to play to this day. I've noticed something about myself that the older I get, right? Like when I was younger, I would be in constant motion on the basketball court. And people would say, I would never talk. I was always moving. But never, people would say, man, you, you never say a word on the court. I was always moving. But I've noticed this. Listen, the older I've got and the less I move because I'm really tired and it hurts when I move, right, and jump, right? The, the less I move, the more I talk. And when you get to the end of the game, and I'm like not moving at all, I'm speaking incessantly. Just talking, talking, talking. Why am I doing that? Why? I'm not moving. All I'm doing is talking. Because I'm trying to give the impression that I'm actually doing something, but I'm not doing anything at all. I'm contributing nothing. And if everybody was like me on the court, we would definitely lose we would just stand around in a huddle and we would just talk to each other and watch the ball go into our basket and the other person would score all the points right we have to move are you ready the question is are you ready to move this morning are you ready to move interesting statistic for people who don't go to church you know the number one time opportunity in their life when they will start going to church think about this listen to this Number one time they'll start going. Anybody want to venture a guess? What's that? Children. Very good. Anybody else? What? Easter. Get married. You know when it is? Number one time for people that don't go to church that they will begin to start going to church? When they move. When they move. Because the church is a moving object. And when they're moving too, it's like when you go to the airport and you get on the thing that's moving, right? They just jump right on the thing that's moving. It's a movement. God is about movement. 
And the church is about a group of people who have been moved. So what's the mission that Jesus Christ has? So John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, right? For God so loved the Lord, what did he do? He did what? What's that word? Yeah. Gave his only son. Sent him. Gave him. God did not send his son in the world, we're told in verse number 17, to condemn the world, but to do what? Save the world. The mission of Christ. And as you look in the book of Acts, you see this all over the place. It says, many people were saved. Many people were saved. Many people were saved. It's like mission accomplished, mission accomplished, mission accomplished. It's about salvation. It's about people receiving Christ as Savior. Now, how did they accomplish that? Think about this a second. How did they accomplish people receiving Jesus Christ? How did they, how did they accomplish that mission? Did they go out door to door? Is that what we read about in the book of Acts? Knocking on the door. Hello? Can I, did, they, did they pass out tracts? Did they stand on the most popular street corner with a big sign that says, turn or burn, right? Did they go into their local McDonald's or whatever and place their order and say, by the way, can I ask you a question? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior of your life? Did they, do we read about them doing that? How did they accomplish that mission, which is so critical to their lives and what the Holy Spirit is saying, this is primary. How did they accomplish that? Did they do this? Because that's what I think. I used to think that all the time. Hey, if we're going to participate in the primary mission of Jesus Christ, the salvation of this plan, the whole reason why he came, it's the most important thing. How am I, as a young minister, you think, oh, man, we got, we got to get out there. You know, we just got to start talking to everybody about Jesus. We've got to ask everybody. No matter if you're McDonald's, a restaurant, co-worker, anything like that. And maybe some of you have seen that happen. You know, you only have to see it happen one time in kind of an obnoxious way, and you'll never forget it the rest of your life. Do you know what I mean? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever seen somebody kind of obnoxiously out of nowhere? Hey, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? And it just, like, turns you off. But this isn't what they did. I remember our church, when I was in our youth group at church, we told them, hey, we're going to win our neighborhood for Jesus Christ. We go out and tell them. I remember we had to go out, knock door to door. It was a Wednesday night. They gave us some traction. Just knock on a door. Do you know Jesus? I remember walking up that door. I hated it. Oh, my gosh. Walk up that door, pound on that door, you know, stay there for about five seconds, turn around and run away. And I would run down that sidewalk and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, nobody was home. Right? How do we accomplish this task that is so primary and critical? Is there a way to do it? Because so often we default to thinking that we've got to be, you know, we just got to force the issue all the time. That's what I want to talk about this morning for just a few moments. What we see them doing is some, uh, something completely different. And I, let me say this. A lot of us have taken missions or spreading the gospel we've taken it off the we've taken it off the table it's off our radar screen because we've seen it done in a way that embarrassed us or we've we're scared to do it we don't under we have a misunderstanding of how to do it we don't understand the importance of it so you take so what i'm trying to do this morning because it's so critical for you and i to figure out what god wants to do in our lives and more important than what God's wants to do in our lives, it's so important about the mission of Jesus Christ that we need to put it front and center of our table. And here's how they did it in the book of Acts. I just want to explain that for just a moment. It's really, really important. Okay, what did you see them doing in the book of Acts to accomplish the mission of Jesus Christ? What you see happening, and I'll only give you a couple, and there's a whole bunch we can go through. What you see happening is the person who has the spiritual gift of hospitality, like the Lydia's of the world of Acts chapter 16, you see them hosting people in their house and 
being a gracious host. Come on in. You've seen them use that gift of hospitality. You see a person like Paul who has the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching. You see him preaching and teaching. You don't see him confronting people in the local McDonald's or whatever and saying, you, you're going to hell and you need to turn your life. You, you don't see that. You see people who have the spiritual gift of encouragement. You see them like a Barnabas encouraging people. The people who have the gift of giving or mercy showing, you see, you see them doing that. It's an amazing thing. People who, who have the gift of evangelism, like a Philip, you see them doing that. The people with the gift of organizing or serving or helping or the gift of wisdom, you see them participating in the mission of Jesus Christ by focusing on their spiritual gift and contributing that to the group of called out people who are on mission, the church. You see everybody doing that. You don't see people sitting back. If you have a gift, and you do have a gift, you have to use it. And when you use your gift, when you use your gift, when you identify your correct gift and you use it the right way, mission accomplished. That's how it works. It works in an absolutely wonderful, wonderful way. So, uh, Grace Community Church, how can it become this place that is on proper mission? How can it become this soul-saving mission of Jesus Christ? It's going to become that way when all of us say, you know what, I'm going to participate. I'm going to figure out where I'm gifted and what I'm comfortable with, and I'm going to begin to contribute towards that. If God hasn't given you the gift of evangelism, if you're not an evangelist, I want to respectfully and hopefully not heretically say this, but stop trying to evangelize. We all have to tell our story. Our, our story of what God done, has done in life is, is, is awesome. It's, it needs to be told. But there's very few of us, about 10% of us actually in this room, who probably have the gift of evangelism. And if you don't have the gift, it just tends not to work right. Can I give you a couple examples? My, uh, my son did a concert a few weeks ago at the 930 Club my up-and-coming concert promoter at the 930 Club. And one of the bands, when they got done, one of the guys made this brief try at evangelism. And I noticed some people standing next to us who I could just pick up. They were not Christians. I won't tell you how I know it. I'm a pastor. I'm clued into these things. I could tell that they weren't <laughs> That the moment the person made the stab at it, they just put their head down and just started shaking their heads. It didn't work. It didn't work. There are certain people who have the gift, and it just works. And if you have it, if you have the gift of evangelism here this morning, all right, then you need to operate in that gift. I've seen people do it, and it's an amazing thing. When Grace Community Church began, like in our first year or two years, there was about 50 of us. And a young woman, a doctor, came into the congregation of like 50 people. Her name was Sue Wong. And she was a doctor down at Georgetown. She had the gift of evangelism. And I remember after she'd been there about a year, that grace went from about 50 people to about 100 people. I remember one day just sitting down, taking note of everybody that I knew in that little church that was in Grace Community Church as a result of Sue Wong. And there was about 30, 30 of the 100. 
We had, and because she was a doctor, we had doctors everywhere. The entire church was saturated with doctors. Like half the church was in the medical profession. I remember one day I was sick, and Sue called, and I was speaking. And so um, I, I went out, and Sue had called somebody, one of the other doctors, and they had gone home and got their medical kit, and they were taking the little tongue thing. What do you call that? All right, whatever. And I was in front of the church, in front of Key School, with the, and they were writing the prescription. About everybody she asked to come because she had the gift responded. I've asked people to come to church all my life. Nobody's coming. I don't have the gift. Look, listen, listen. we have this beautiful piano over here. What if I said from now on every Sunday I'm going to sing my sermons? You would no longer come to church because it would be horrendous. And yet we misunderstand this. So I don't have the gift of music. I have anything but the gift of music. It's so far. The point is, is that when you operate in your gift, it's a wonderful thing. I used to work with a guy. He had a gift for mercy showing. Mercy. Like when somebody was hurting, you just wanted to be around this guy, particularly around death. Like when somebody, there had been a death in the family, just send them in. He would say the stupidest things in the world as far as I was concerned. But it didn't matter. Something just flowed from him that people loved it. People, I remember somebody say to me, when he comes in the room, it's like magic. It's like magic. You know why? He had the gift to show mercy for somebody who was hurting and in pain. Now, you know what the church did with this person? They tried to take him and say, okay, you have this great gift of mercy, and you're a pastor, so we want you to do these other things like preach and teach. And you know what? He had no gift for preaching and teaching. It was terrible. Operating out of his gift. Are you catching what I'm saying this morning? It is so incredibly important that every single one of us participate. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're associated with Jesus, you are on a mission. You have a choice. The Holy Spirit is screaming inside of you, mission, move, move. You have to move. You're frustrating yourself if you're not moving. And if, you, if you're trying to work in some gift that is not your gift, you're frustrating yourself even further. We have to move. We've got to move the way that Jesus Christ wants us to move. Now, if you could write this down. Now, we're coming full circle. Answer God's call for your world. We're thinking about, God, I just want to know what your will is for my life. Okay. Uh, that's a good question, everybody. I don't want to put the question down, and you should keep asking it if you want to know that answer. God, what is your will for my life? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Tone the question down. Like if you're asking it 10 times a year or 10 times a week, ask it a whole lot less than that. And here's the question you want to ask a whole lot more. God, what is your will for this world? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says something very important to us, all of us who are trying to figure out what God's will is for our life. He says, something, he says if you will lose your life in my life, you will find your life. But if you keep pursuing your life, you're going to lose your very life. What is he trying to say? That if we become more concerned about what is concerning God, his mission in this world, we become most concerned of that rather than, oh, I'm just concerned about my life, my life. If I keep trying to press in to find it, I'm actually moving farther away from it. He says, if you'll press in to know what concerns me most, more than anything else, you'll end up bumping into your life. That's what's going to happen. 
It's a great thing to say, God, what is your will for my life? But a better thing for us to do is be to say, God, what is your will in this world? And how can I participate in it? And we begin to participate in what's God doing on this planet. We're going to find ourselves much more at peace with what God wants to do in our lives. This is just the way it works according to Scripture. Concern yourself with that. Move. You can't sit just on the sidelines because it's not an option. Let me close with this. You ever seen, like, I don't know, a group of people, um, you've been at something where there's a bunch of kids before, maybe a TV show, right? And they'll ask kids, ask three, four, five-year-olds, maybe like the kids that were up here this morning, and they'll put a microphone up and they'll say, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Do they say, you know what, five-year-old kid, I really would like to be an accountant. I would like to sit at a desk all day and write computer software. Do they say those kind of things? There's nothing wrong with either one. But do they say those things? What do they say? I want to be a policeman. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a soldier. I want to be a doctor. I want to save somebody's life. God put it in our DNA. It's how you're wired. You were wired to rescue, and that's why some of the greatest stories and movies we ever watch are about somebody being rescued. And here's the good news. If you're an accountant, or you write computer software, or you do data entry all day long, you know what? You can still participate in the greatest rescue effort ever known to mankind. And that is the rescue of every person on this planet. God's word says he doesn't see, want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that means each one of us must participate. Now you might be saying, John, this is obnoxiously self-serving of you. Because you're a pastor of a church and all you're trying to do is to get us work. And I can tell you, though you probably don't believe me, Actually, that's not my goal this morning. My goal is, is that you would find life and find it more abundantly. And according to Scripture, the best way for that to happen is for you to identify your gift and to participate. It's the reason why we have no sign-up list here today. You might say, okay, John, well, what am I going to do? Show me how to find my gift. I, we don't have any sign-up list for you today. This is something I really want you to think about. Last thing, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells something very important, everybody. He tells a series of three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Let's talk about the first two. Tells three. Boom, boom, boom. The lost sheep, the lost coin. There's an all-out search. Who is representative of the lost sheep and the lost coin? It's the person, like in Corinth, who has not yet received Christ as Savior. And what God says is, is an all-out search. Like with the lost sheep, you've got 99 sheep. And the shepherd goes to find the one. He abandons everything. He puts everything at peril because what is primary importance, what is the most important thing, the most important part of the mission is to find that one person who is away. It breaks the heart of God. It breaks the heart of God. What we must begin to pray for is, God, break my heart with what breaks yours. If you want to find your life here this morning... I think the quickest way that you could do that is say, God, break my heart with what breaks yours. What breaks yours? And I'm willing to move. I'm willing to stop being static 
and be an observer, and I'm willing to begin to participate because the church is not stationary. The church is on the move, and I want to jump on board with this moving ship and be a part of the mission. And we do that, we find life, and we find it to its fullest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for your word. God, this is an issue that concerns many, many people in this room. How do I find my life? Thank you, Lord, that you give us this very clear and very simple roadmap, this plan. It's not complex. It's not difficult to understand. As I begin to pray, Father, break my heart what breaks yours, and I 